Good morning. Um, <clears throat> the text for this morning, which um, I had a hard time deciding which one to use, but it's, it's one you're all familiar with, and uh, it might take a while for you to even see the connection between what I'm going to say and what the text is. <laughs> it's uh, Philippians 4, 5, and 6, I think it is. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Those first two or three words, be anxious for nothing, four words, I guess would be the theme of what I want to talk about today. And um, I need to confess that as I started preparing for this sermon, I was really struggling with it. So what do you do? When you're in that situation, you call your pastor and you ask for advice. <laughs> Zach advised me, says, narrow the topic to a single question or proposition that can be addressed by a series of texts that address that proposition, but to be careful not to do it by newspaper exegesis, if you know what that means. This is difficult. <laughs> and I may be treading a very narrow line here. The sermon today is related to the, here we go, the political chaos, the divisions in our country, and the complications brought on by COVID-19 and the election, and what the biblical response should be. Can you narrow that to a simple proposition? Okay, step right up. <laughs> well, started out by saying, be anxious for nothing. But nevertheless, let's start with a sure understanding of the power of God that we believe in. Specifically, his sovereignty over everything that happens so that we can confidently trust in the promise of Romans 8.28, which I'm sure most of you know. We know that all things work together for good for, love, for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, relate that to another verse. In Matthew 8.29, just for a moment, think of this. Quote, are not the sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. And then verse 31 goes on. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Question. Are any of you readers of Shakespeare? I should have known. <laughs> I'm certainly not. But the, here is an interesting personal deduction involving Mr. Shakespeare. I need to uh, preface this by telling you about something our daughter Molly did when she was a teenager, I think. Um, she drew a picture of a sparrow standing on a twig. And for some reason, because she's not a Shakespeare reader either, but for some reason... There, she has a quote from Shakespeare 
that she wrote down and put on the, the bottom of this, this drawing that she had done. So just so that you know the source of what, where I got this, I wasn't reading Shakespeare. But a little background. Shakespeare was born in 1564. He died in 1616. So he probably had access to both the Geneva Bible, which was first published in 1560, and certainly to the King James Bible, which was published in 1611, five years before he died. Now, I don't know if he was a Christian, but listen to this quote from Hamlet. This is the, the quote that Molly wrote on and put on the, her, the picture of the sparrow. Act 6, scene 2. And see if you don't believe that Shakespeare was influenced by the sparrow account in Matthew 8. Quote, there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. Since no man of debt or moral obligation he leaves knows, what is it to leave betimes? Let be. He covered all of the logical arguments that you could come up with there. And now, keeping in mind, we're going to go on to a third statement, which I believe expresses the same message. Maybe I'm crazy. But what I've just read by Shakespeare seems to agree with the analysis by Jonathan Edwards, the last of the great Puritans, who wrote, I believe, the same idea, but in a different mode. I broke it down into four different steps. Again, it's this real logical step-by-step analysis. Um, Jonathan Edwards says, number one, whether God has decreed all things that ever come to pass or not, all that believe in the being of a God believe that he knows all things beforehand. Arminians believe that, don't they? God knows all things beforehand. Number two, now, it is self-evident that if he knows all things beforehand, then number three follows. He either doth approve of them or he doth not approve of them. That is, he is either willing they should be, or he is not willing they should be. Point number four, but to will that they should be is to decree them. Isn't that something where he can wrap that all up just in a nutshell like that? Therefore, we should ask, did God know beforehand, as an example, about all the events that have taken place just concerning our country alone? This past year, according to Jonathan Edwards, he not only knew them, but he decreed them. How can we be blind to this fact when the supreme example of God's sovereign providence is described in Acts 2.23, that God's only son was, quote, delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God taken by lawless hands, crucified and put to death, unquote. This describes the murder of the Son of God, which was at the same time the most vile 
and the second most important event in human history, surpassed only by his resurrection and ascension. This is the power that makes Romans 8.28 possible. This is the power that allowed Joseph to say to his treacherous brothers in Genesis 50.20, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Specifically, that God's chosen people would survive and the story of redemption would continue. I would ask, in light of the political and societal events of this past year especially, but even farther back, what ought to be the Christian response? In thinking about this subject, I immediately remembered a video series that Margie and I have had for some years. Its title is Restoring America. Don't worry, I'm not suggesting anything like America being the new Israel or her fulfillment of some dispensational sort of prophecy. The goal here is simply to remind us and clarify for us the intimate relationship between the principles of our American Constitution upon which the United States were founded and the same principles in Scripture. The video was produced by Peter Marshall. He was a Presbyterian minister in New England. His father was also Peter Marshall. Some of you older folks might remember him. He was a Scottish-American pastor. He was pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church and was later in the 1940s appointed chaplain of the United States Senate. Now, at this point, I need to offer a small caveat concerning these things. I have asked myself, is it even an appropriate topic for a sermon in a Christian church? After all, we, especially a reformed Christ, Christian, as Reformed Christians are, it would seem, generally regarded as doctrinal zealots, separated from the real world, to which I would reply, the real world is inextricably attached to the doctrine, that is, the knowledge and application of God's holy word, an inerrant word. At any rate, the video I re referenced is one which starts with the pilgrims and the Puritans and continuing up until the 2000s describes intimate connections between the teachings of the Bible and the foundations of the American nation via the U.S. Constitution. For our purposes on this Lord's Day, I want to highlight one aspect of Peter Marshall's description of the connection between the Christian life and the social and political events in these early days of what would become the United States. In those days, the pastor was often the best educated and well-read person in the village. And as such, he often included in his sermons commentary and advice on how to interpret and apply God's word to the events of the day. By 1787, 13 colonies had ratified the U.S. Constitution, establishing a federal government. The word federal, you ever thought about it? When I think the word federal, I think central government, you know, big flashing letters. The word federal comes from the Latin word fetus, not fetus, fetus, F-O-E-D-U-S. 
And the meaning is also the same as the word covenant. We are covenant Christians. This was a French term that indicated a solemn agreement or contract, a concept most fully developed in Scripture. For example, you remember how Zach emphasized for us the concept and the power of covenant a few months back when he preached through the book of Galatians. How in chapter 4, Paul taught that God's promise to Abraham, that is his covenant of grace, superseded even the covenant of works through the law. I'll bet Zach remembers preaching on it. Adam was the federal or the covenant head of mankind, but he broke the covenant. Jesus was the federal head of the covenant of grace. He fulfilled the covenant. Now, we know from Romans 13 that government authorities are appointed by God. And their purpose is to do good. We also know that perhaps more often than not, they fail at this calling. This is why the idea of covenant or federalism is stressed in the Constitution to limit the evil tendencies of people. After all, Jeremiah 17:9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. According to the the, the Reverend Marshall, quote, government exists only to secure God-given rights. Therefore, government creates nothing. Repeat, government creates nothing. Even Thomas Jefferson, certainly not a Christian, said that government which governs least governs best. Do we need even more evidence? about the dominant thinking underlying the Constitution and whether or not that was Christian. Consider this. Here's some trivia for you. Article 1, Section 7, Page 2 of the Constitution. It was passed. This law was passed, this article that I just mentioned. It was, it was sent. And then a bill was, was sent to the president. Now, this article and section and paragraphs it is this is the actual wording of it. it says if any bill shall not be returned by the president within 10 days after it shall have been presented to him then in parentheses it says sundays accepted after it shall have been presented to him the same shall be a law in other words the president had 10 days to sign it if he didn't sign it it went into effect anyway he was just ignoring it, that he was politically saying, I may not agree with this, but there's, I know there's nothing I can do about it. So it goes into effect. But did you notice Sunday's accepted? If a Sunday comes along in the middle of that 10 day period, it doesn't count against the 10 days. The mentality in those days and the Constitution was, yes, we respect the biblical teachings. This is a little example of, of our foundations. As a government, it was recognized that the Christian ethos would be the best road forward. Now, I'd like to refer again to that favorite verse of many Christians, Romans 8:28. All things work together for good for those who love God. Sometimes it even seems like the bad things 
work according to God's plans, don't they? Now, think about that verse. Let me ask you, how closely or faithfully or genuinely do we really believe that verse? Does it fall glibly from our lips? Or do we truly believe that in the face of things like heart disease, kidney failure, lawlessness, warfare, business failure, car wrecks, loss of employment, family strife, yes, even family strife and division in the family, that God is at work for our good. Even family strife. After all, think about Matthew 10.35. Quote, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his household. Jesus actually said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. Parenthetically, I think sometime we should have a real heavy-duty study on those verses. Is it faster? <laughs> think about Joseph himself in terms of family strife. How Jesus, Joseph was sold into slavery by his own family, his brothers. Now, we're all familiar with some and perhaps many such things, those lists that I mentioned. And now, in the past year, in addition to the usual calamities, we run into COVID-19 and political and social chaos. In light of such things, we are sorely tempted to ask, is God indifferent to the human condition? How could this be? Don't we read, for example, in the Bible that, quote, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18.32. But we also read in Isaiah 49 a contradictory sounding verse. Listen to this. The nations are like dust on the scales. Just picture that. In some old time uh, man working, working in his hardware store or whatever, and he looks and his scales are covered with dust. Well, blows it away. That's how God thinks about the nations. He is so above us, we cannot imagine it. On the one hand, The nations are like dust on the scales, and yet right above it says God takes no pleasure in the day of the wicked. How do we reconcile verses like that? Um, Think about another example. Psalm 1 similarly says the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind blows away. Sure makes me wonder, who are the nations that are mentioned here? that are like dust on the scales. Are they the unbelievers throughout history? While we as believers are to be not chaff, but a nation of priests, as we're described in 1 Peter chapter 2, my conclusion, that God is certainly not indifferent to his people, but his plans may be quite different than ours. And we need to adjust to his will. Let's examine the events of the past year in the light of his word. Of course, many of these societal things have a history going back years. For example, we can reflect on the 1960s. 
the start of the drug era, of sexual license, of the groundwork being laid for legalized abortion, of constant military involvement throughout the world, of government intrusion into almost every walk of life, public and private, by exposing every corner of American social, economic, and political life to direction from bureaucrats and judges enforcing laws never passed by Congress. If you need an example of that, think of bilingual education. Congress never passed the law enforcing bilingual education. And guess what? None of it happened without God's allowing it. He decreed it. You know the old saying about giving someone enough rope and they'll hang themselves? I think it applies to a country as well. As Christians, I believe that we should mourn the degradation and the ignorance of our Constitution that was founded on biblical principles. We should also mourn the aberrations within the church, the body of Christ. During the invasion of the White House, for example, a reporter's video from the Senate floor shows a gang of rioters purporting to pray after an exploitive-laden romp through the room, saying, quote, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name, unquote. One photo from that day showed a demonstrator hoisting two giant flags. One read, Make America Godly Again, and the other showed a doctored image of President Trump brandishing a machine gun. In a letter to the editor of World Magazine, this is a Christian magazine that Margie and I have taken for years, has a real strong reformed leaning, as a matter of fact. We read, quote, this is, a, this is a letter to the editor of World Magazine. This is from a woman who, for over 30 years, subscribed to the magazine. This is her response to what the magazine had to say about these events. Quote, Once World, the magazine, became never Trumpers, I cut my membership, meaning her subscription. Now my Christian, in quotes, friend, that is the magazine, of 30 plus years is an intellectual and social snob. I hope God will smite you not send you to hell, but give you back some of the suffering you have caused in dividing the body of Christ. And a few weeks ago, Margie and I were watching a TV show, which we always find interesting. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Socrates in the City. It's hosted by Alex Metaxas. Some years past, he gained a degree of fame when he wrote a book called Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, prophet, spy. Now, each episode that Metaxas hosts has wonderful speakers and thinkers. His guest this last time that we watched it was Os Guinness. He's a brilliant British-American philosopher. His response to the capital invasion was as follows. Quote, Anti-Trump evangelicals and Catholics haven't analyzed the situation rightly. They became upset with Trump, and they failed to see that he's not the cause of the problem. He's the consequence, the symptom, unquote. Now, if Guinness is correct, should we ask, 
What is Trump the consequence of? Years of ineffective government leaders? Or perhaps of overly effective government leaders? 60 years of apathetic or ignorant voters? Unscrupulous tycoons? Indifferent Christians? Ultra-liberal college faculties? Where would the list stop? In summarizing, I'd like to read to you a daily reading from Table Talk magazine, a reformed publication which has many great articles on the Christian life. Um, Psalm 120 begins with the words, He heard me. And then you go on and read clear through the whole psalm. Just keep that in mind as, as we go along here. Though Christians... Oh, by the way, this is written by a man named Robert Van Dudward. And uh, he is a pastor of Hope Reformed Church in Ontario, Canada. Though Christians may try to pursue what makes for peace, that's Romans fourteen nineteen. We seem to have an increasing number of neighbors who want to be at war with us. Many of us are in communities, workplaces, homes, or even churches where we have had to deal with hostility and slander. This struggle, however, is not new. Thousands of years ago, the psalmist lamented very similar circumstances, but they also found enduring hope in the middle of such trials. One of these songs of lament is Psalm 120. This is the first of a series of 15 psalms that are titled Songs of Ascents. These songs were likely sung on pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem. The main focus of Psalm 120 is a cry for deliverance from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. The psalmist struggles with the reality that evil speakers deserve judgment, and yet they are a continuing problem in his life. He sees himself as living in Meshech and among the tents of Kedar, which are names of foreign tribes who lived beyond the fringes of Israel. It is likely that he used these distant names as a dark metaphor, crying out as, at, as it were, Woe is me, for I live with a bunch of barbarians. While he wishes for peace, his neighbors want to be at war with him. This psalm reminds us that even for many Old Testament believers, Pilgrimage did not begin with a rosy or idyllic life. Pilgrimage began with discomfort with this world and a cry of distress. It is inevitable that believers will have challenges in relationships. The Lord Jesus taught that even within families there would be difficulties. Then he referenced that Matthew 10 chapter about dividing families. A faithful believer could expect to be hated. Quote, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15:19. Though a Christian may strive to be at peace as much as possible, conflict can become unavoidable. We ought to consider, however, that in God's providences, these experiences can ultimately be useful. Conflicts may be one of the early challenges of the Christian life that make pilgrims out of us. They can detach us from hope in this world and drive us nearer to Christ. Quote, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 13. Through suffering at the hands of his own brethren, the Son of God lived and died under persecution far more unjust than we can imagine. When we struggle with conflict and even endure reproach, that struggle may be used by the sovereign God to bring us into closer communion with Christ, causing us to cry out to the Lord. Let us have confidence that our constant hope is that he heard me.